Well, good morning, Christ Bible Church. Good morning. Thank you for joining us in gathered worship here today. Uh, my name is Zach. If you don't know me, I'm on staff here, and I have the privilege of, uh, woo, yeah, someone's a fan. Yeah, all right. Better than first service. Uh, let me invite you to turn to 1 Timothy 5 here. I have the honor of continuing on in our series through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, let me know. We'd love to get you a Bible. That'd be our gift to you. We also have First uh, Timothy 5 scripture journals in the hallway so you can take notes along the margins as you read the word, and that's our gift to you as well. Uh, let's read First Timothy 5, 1 through 16 together. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let them care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. Father, we praise you that you call us from death to life, and you call us to life together, that we may gather and sing your praises. Proclaim your name. Care for one another, Lord, because you've cared for us, Pro provided us with our need uh, for salvation through the work of Christ. And so I pray uh, for the proclamation of your word today, Lord. May you prepare our hearts to see and hear what you have for us so that we may live godly lives that bring you glory. Lord, I pray you bless our time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our technological age where we consistently ignore the warnings of sci-fi movies, uh, we have uh, created artificial intelligence, right? This is a big thing in the news and culture right now. AI kind of taking the world by storm. And you can rest assured... This sermon was not written by AI. It will make fun of AI a little bit too much for that. Uh, but one question in culture is, will AI, will artificial intelligence, take jobs away from people? It's a reasonable question. Uh, Microsoft said, yeah, that's going to happen. Fired a bunch of their staffers and then replaced them with artificial intelligence. 
Well, now they're in a bit of hot water because they're realizing that artificial intelligence really isn't uh, that smart at all. Look at this recent headline. MSN calls deceased NBA player, quote, useless in shocking AI-generated headline gaffe. So that's a terrible thing to call a person who's just died, right? It's a sad thing to call a person who's just died useless. Do you know who knows that? Every human being that's alive currently knows not to call a dead person useless, right? So they say it's a shocking headline generated by AI. I wouldn't call it particularly shocking. You're asking a computer to write a touchy, heartfelt, personal obituary for this person, and they can't do it because they're a computer. They don't know how to care about people. In fact, they can't care about people. But when we come to our text today, uh, we see Paul coming to uh, Timothy and giving him very specific instructions about how to do one very simple thing, care about people. And that's at the heart of our text today in 1 Timothy 5. Paul comes to Timothy and said, here's how you care about your church. Look to verse 1 with me. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Okay, so Timothy is a younger man. He's an elder at this church. He's charged with this flock, the shepherd taking care of his sheep. And he's coming to learn something. He's coming to learn that the people in his church are sometimes wrong. What's he to do? Right? As an elder, he's called to keep a close watch on the doctrine of the church, on his people. It's his duty, it's his privilege, it's his calling from God uh, to love these people, to lead these people toward good theology, towards good worship, pointing them to the good and perfect God. And by necessity, that means he's also got to lead them away from what is bad, what is wrong, what is sinful. So Timothy and we hear this message from Paul that we're to care about people, we're to love people by correcting them. But Paul warns Timothy how Timothy gives this correction is an essential part of his leadership because it shows his love for those individual people. It's not a question of whether or not Timothy should rebuke, should correct. So you read verse 1, it says, don't rebuke, but encourage. Well, that doesn't mean, hey, let it go, just be nice, just be kind. No, it means the posture in which you correct the people in your life has to be one that shows your love and care for them, Timothy. Right? These verses say to us, correct because you care, but even more so, correct in a way that shows your love and care. And so Paul offers up the metaphor of a family of fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, which thematic throughout all of Scripture were the family of God, were brothers and sisters in Christ, and so on and so on. Uh, but I think Paul is also trying to do something visceral here because think about times in your life where you've had to correct your own father, where you've had to correct your, your mom, or you've seen sin in the life of your brother and you have to confront it. That should be a weighty, stressful thing, right? Something you don't do lightly. Why? 
Well, because you care about these people. You care about your family. It's not as simple as just getting your point across. Unless, I mean, if you're being sinful, it's that simple, right? But Paul is saying, hey, you're trying to honor these people. You love these people. You care about the members in your church. And so does God. So when you walk alongside them, especially when you're confronting them, when you're pulling them away from bad doctrine, you have to give them the dignity that they have as members in God's family. Just like you can't go to your own father and browbeat him and berate him and yell at him and roll your eyes at him that the old man will never learn. Or go to your mom and raise your voice and scream and yell and, and mock her, throw some cuss words in there just for good measure, right? You can't do that. Just like you can't do that, Paul's saying to Timothy, hey, if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be a shepherd of these people, you can't scold them. You can't take your shepherd's crook and whack them across the head and grumble about them. No, it's, it's your duty and privilege uh, to, to correct them because you love them and to correct them in a way that shows your love for them. Uh, so I think I could stop there for some people and say that's enough of an application for you guys, right? If, especially if maybe if you're a bit more of a people pleaser or you don't really like confrontation, you don't really like conflict. Well, what Paul is telling to Timothy is, hey, as you shepherd these people, as you love these people, it's actually because you love them that you want to say to them, hey, you're over here, and I think right now you need to be over here. Right? We have this tendency to think, well, if I, what if I confront them and then they're not my friend anymore? Or, you know, what if I confront them and it causes all this drama or this, that, and the other, and I don't want to risk that? Well, uh, the loving thing to do as a friend, Paul says, as an elder to Timothy, is call them out of what is wrong. Um, for those of you who are like, yeah, okay, I'm great at this one. I love my conflict. I love my confrontation. Uh, an essential part of this is your posture. And so I think the question for you is, okay, you might love that conflict, but do you love that confrontation? Do you love that correction? Because you want to see that other person grow spiritually? Because culture more and more is unhitching from that entirely. Right? We're cheering for the beatings. We love the smackdowns on the internet. This, that, and the other. We see someone in error. We see someone in sin. We're buying our tickets to the Coliseum. We want to see the blood shed. That person needs to pay. Paul tells Timothy something else. He says, when you see someone in error, when you see uh, someone in sin, what you should see is a chance to help them live a godly life, a chance to cultivate spiritual growth. You shouldn't see the dead branch on the tree and then go get your axe. Let's take this whole tree down. Paul says to Timothy, hey, you see that dead branch. You can gently prune that off and now you've got a tree that can flourish for a lifetime. Can love and provide for other people. And that's the picture of what it means to walk in the family of God. To live in the family of Christ. And as a church member, that's what you promise to do. When you sign on that dotted line, it's not a club. You don't get a membership card and a 5% discount at the store. You're saying, hey, if I'm a church member here, I'm going to love and I'm going to pray and I'm going to care for these other people. 
And sometimes in that family that we all have, uh, we have duties to care for specific types of people. So 1 Timothy 5 here, we see uh, that we have a duty to care and honor widows. So before we jump into verse 3 and talk about what it means to honor widows, I just want to take a swing at you guys and ask, do you know who the widows at Christ Bible Church are? All right, they don't carry a sign that says, I'm a widow over here, right? So it's understandable if you don't know them. But as part of the family of God, if you're a church member here, you have to know they're here. And God has put you in position to love them, honor them, care for them. <clears throat> if you need extra incentive, uh, the widows at CBC are really funny. So, you know, you'll get some good jokes out of it. And so what I would say for you, if you don't know them, I'm not going to give you a list of who they are and their phone numbers or this or that, but next week, uh, come to church and just sit somewhere else. You've got your seat. It's a comfortable seat that you enjoy, and then you greet your neighbors, and you've been greeting the same five neighbors for the last two years. Right? So we move around. You'll find the diversity that exists within the body of Christ here, and you'll actually meet some of these people. Okay, rant over. Verse, verse number three. Uh, honor widows who are truly widows. Okay, honor widows who are truly widows. So Paul calls us to care for widows. Simple enough. Two questions for us, though. Uh, how do we honor widows? How do we fulfill that? How do we honor widows? And who is truly a widow? That's quite a qualifier that he's put in. Who is truly a widow? How do we care, honor them, and who is truly a widow? Well, if you look down to verse 9, uh, you'll see Paul command, let a widow be enrolled. Okay, so how do we honor widows? Well, the church enrolls them in something. This either means that they get enrolled into an order or an office, similar to, if you could imagine, a Catholic nun who takes care of the orphanage and prays for people and takes care of the sick, and in return, uh, the church provides for her financial needs and takes care of her. Or uh, they're enrolled in the sense that they come into some sort of formal agreement with the church, that the church is going to provide for them financially, but there's not really an expectation that they're going to work or serve or do anything in return, which I, I think is the correct one. Regardless, uh, what's at stake ultimately is the financial provision of widows by the church. In other words, who gets the church's money? That's what Paul and Timothy are talking about. Hence the question of the true widows. And I think it points to the fact that the bank account of a church can reach zero. Right? Every church has limited funds, limited supplies, limited capacity. <clears throat> and therefore, it's actually a good and wise thing. It's actually a caring thing for Paul to address Timothy like this. If you care about these people, you care about their money, you care about how it's going to be used for the kingdom, let's have some stipulations for how the money is spent, how people are provided for. And so we're going to honor those who are truly widows by providing financially for them. But who is truly a widow? Well, Paul begins to answer it in the negative when you look at verse 4 here. He says, uh, who isn't truly a widow? But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their household and make some return to their parents, 
for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Okay, so Paul says, 1 Timothy 5 says for us, if a widow has family still, let the family learn to show godliness and make some return to their parents. Make some return to their parents means provide for them financially. So Paul defines who, who isn't truly a widow first under the basis of a familial relationship. Do they have family or not? Well, two things are happening here. The first one is children and grandchildren ought to care for their widowed mother. And not only that, but it's an act of sanctification. It's an act of learning and growing in godliness. It's an act of spiritual growth for them to care for their family. Which is not the posture many of us might have naturally. If you found out today that you had to take care of your widowed mom, the money, the space in the house, the medical bills. For some of you, it's just the drama. You're not thinking, oh, this is a chance now for me to learn godliness. This is, this is something that is pleasing to God, Paul says. And conversely, if it brings spiritual growth, if it's something that's pleasing to God for their children to do it, then it would be wrong for the church to do it. That would be the church robbing them of an opportunity to learn godliness, of an opportunity to live like Jesus. And, you know, in other words, since the, the church cares, since Timothy's called to care about everyone involved, these widows shouldn't receive the money because that wouldn't be caring to their children. This is a chance for their children to grow in godliness. And the church, in many cases, does become a way in which people can be tempted to outsource Christian duty, spiritual growth. Not even on purpose most of the time, but you think, man, if I could just get my neighbor to church and then the pastor could share the gospel with them, forgetting about the fact that you could get your neighbor over to dinner and you could share the gospel with them. And not only would that be a good thing for them, it would also be a good thing for you. You would be learning godliness by doing that. You'd be growing to be more like Jesus to do that. I'm going to drop my kids off at children's ministry, youth ministry, and that's where they're going to learn to be good Christians. Forgetting about the fact that the more you raise your children to be like Jesus, the more you're learning to be like Jesus yourself. And so Paul's warning Timothy, I think there's a good warning for us here that uh, we, the church can't become something that robs you of your ability to live like Jesus. On the, same, the other side of the coin, you can't expect the church to live like Jesus for you. You can't expect your elder to live like Jesus for you and do the things that God has called you to do. Rather, the true widow, according to Paul, is the one who needs the church's support because she is left all alone. Look to verse 5 with me. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So one distinct mark of the widow 
is that there's now nothing for her in this life other than the Lord. While she may be alone, she's now marked, she now lives a life of communion with God. Prayer embodies who she is day and night. She's in the presence of her Lord. And the flip side of that, Paul introduces, is a widow who is self-indulgent. So now we've got a, 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 first it was a familial thing. Do you have family? But now he's introducing a moral issue. The true widow is one who's devoting her life now to prayer, to be with the Lord, to be in God's presence, and to support her financially is going to empower her to continue to do so. It's going to provide for her so she can continue to live a life this way. Whereas there is a self-indulgent widow and where the logic is the exact same. If you were to provide for her financially, it would empower her to continue to live a life of self-indulgence. To fund her would be to enable her to continue splurging in this life and rejecting the next, Paul says. And this teaching isn't some secret bylaw. It's not hidden in the fine print, right? You don't have to email the elders for their policy on this one. Paul says, make sure everyone knows this. Command this so that everyone may obey it and everyone has a chance to honor it. Because, verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, <clears throat> if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul says the family is designed by God to be a necessary source, a good source of provision. And to neglect providing for your family receives a condemnation from Paul that you are worse than an unbeliever. Consider the weight of such an accusation. If you're claiming to love the Lord, if you're claiming to know Christ and you aren't willing to take care of your family when they need it, especially in this context, take care of the widow, you're worse than an unbeliever. Because if you worship the true and living God, you know that God has given you this family. God has called you to honor this family. Christ died for this family. And you can't turn your back on them. And you couldn't even do this legally as a Roman citizen. So forget about the church for a second. Uh, if you were just a non-Christian Roman citizen going about your business, and you now had a widowed mom, your father had passed away, if you're the oldest son, you would receive the inheritance. So one of the ways, you know, our culture kind of fixes this is the son doesn't receive it, the wife receives it. Okay. But in first century Rome, the oldest son would receive it, and the laws on the books in Rome said, you don't get this unless you're willing to sign on the dotted line that you're going to take care of your widowed mom. If you don't want to take care of her, then we're just going to take all of this. It's ours now, and we're going to take care of her. And so you've got this wicked pagan empire in the Romans. In many ways, they don't love the Lord. They don't know the gospel, and they've got laws on the books making sure that their widows were comfortable provided for, taken care of. One scholar says that because of the laws on inheritance, quote, legally, 
a woman was never as thoroughly protected as she was in her old age in Rome. So Paul is saying to the church and to us, hey, they get it, right? Paul's not just saying this to be dramatic. He's saying the unbelievers, they get this one. Okay, so now as people who love the Lord, as people who know the gospel, are we going to be the ones who reject our widows? Reject the weak and vulnerable? And the rubber hits the road for us real quick uh, in two ways. One of the ways is if you don't have a widowed mom yet, statistically, eventually you will. But some of you already do, and some of you have widowed neighbors, widowed friends, there's widows here at CBC, so how do we provide for them? When that time comes, how do we honor them? How do we care for them financially? Because that's our calling. Do we put them in a home? Do they move into our home? Do they move in to your brother's home? Do you move in across the street so you can be closer to her? I don't think the text really answers that question for us. But it does warn us. It warns us that this is a matter of godliness. This is a spiritual matter, and we should consider it so when we have to cross that bridge. And it warns us that this is a decision we make to honor the widow, to do the best we can to lift her up and die to ourselves. And so if you're pushing for the nursing home option when that time comes because you're thinking to yourself, put her in a home, I can sell the house, I can buy that boat I've been wanting, you've misread what it means to honor and provide for the widow. Right? This is for her. We make decisions to honor and care for the widow. And although the context is primarily about widows, I think it certainly applies to how we ought to provide for the entire family unit, especially as husbands. How, how are we to provide for our children, our wives, extended relatives maybe even in varying degrees, uh, which, as the text is showing us, that's a blessing. That's something that helps us be godly. That's something that's pleasing to God to care for your family, which means it's something we should rejoice at. But if you notice... One of the things Paul's saying that maybe our culture doesn't think about a lot is Paul has really defined, well, who's the best person to care for a widow? Their children. And increasingly and increasingly, we're a society, America is a country that's having less and less children. And so when we think about provision, we think about finances, we think about caring, if we point to this verse and we say, well, I don't want to have any kids because I don't want to have the pressure to provide for them or they're expensive. I'm paying some hospital bills for my baby currently. They, I, they are expensive. I will, I'm not going to lie to you. That is part of it. I understand that. Uh, but if you're thinking solely about finances when you make decisions about having children, you're actually overlooking something that will probably be reality, which is one day, especially if you're a husband, you will die and your wife will probably still be alive, will now be a widow, and she's meant to be cared for by the children that you never had. Right? And so it's actually an act of provision for your wife to have children. Uh, I will not, from the pulpit, say how many you should have. More is the answer. No, just kidding. Uh, let a widow be enrolled. Jump back into the text here. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband 
having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So we come to the second half of this passage, and we have Paul's moral argument for who should be provided for really expanded on here. Uh, there's some moral, uh, spiritual moral consistency between the godly widow that we saw in verse 5 and the self-indulgent widow. Right? The, the self-indulgent widow, if she receives the financial support of the church, will stray, Paul says. The widow who's not a true widow will be drawn away from Christ. So they may be cared for if Timothy cares for them, but they certainly won't care for others. There's an inwardness about them. They seek to indulge themselves, pursue themselves, chase their own desires. So they have passions. You can read between the lines what that means. And so they have a desire to marry, says Paul. Their desire to marry is going to outweigh their desire to marry in the confines of how God has designed marriage and so they'll abandon Christ. That's the warning. Their desire to marry is going to outweigh their desire to marry a godly man, so they'll chase after non-believers, and they'll abandon Christ. Or that that financial provision, that financial security, it's going to lead them to live a life of self-fulfillment and worldly comfort, where they get bored. They're going on about nothing. They're going from house to house, gossiping, shooting the breeze, wasting their days away. And for those of you uh, who have an office job, this might be a relatable picture. Right? So if, and if it's you, you can confess to me later. It's okay, I won't put you on the spot. But you know, you gotta stretch your legs, maybe you've been staring at the computer screen for too long, so you get up, go to the water cooler, someone's there, oh, you know, how are you doing? How's life? On your way back, you stop by this cubicle, how was your weekend? How is everything? Stop by that cubicle. How are your kids? How's that movie that you saw last week? Got to go get the courtyard, get some fresh air. Left something in the car. Going to go to the break room, get some coffee. I need some more water now to get that coffee breath out. And on and on and on and on and on this worker goes. Well, what does that show? It certainly shows some work ethic issues. But it also shows that that kind of person has some real job security. Because if you're on the chopping block, you don't reach your daily steps before lunchtime, walking around talking to all your coworkers. You're trying to get your work done. You've got to have some job security and no real incentive to work hard to just mosey about. Go, from, go on to cubicle to cubicle. In the same way, Paul's warning Timothy, hey, these younger widows, these self-indulgent widows, 
If you provide for them financially, then they're going to have no incentive. They're going to have this job security where they can just go from house to house, where they can just do whatever they want. They're going to indulge their flesh and they're going to waste their lives. But don't, don't forget this part of it. Don't miss what Paul is helping Timothy understand. He's helping Timothy care for these people. If you care about these widows, you can't be the reason that they can indulge their flesh all day and night, do whatever they want, gossip about from house to house. You can't leave room for the devil to work in their lives because you've provided for them in this way. You can't give the enemies of Christ a reason to point at them and say, that's the people that the church is paying for. No, instead, Paul calls them to live full lives. Paul says, look, have them marry, have them raise children. Give them purpose to fill their days. Not because it's, oh, they're designed to marry and have kids. No, because if they do nothing, then the devil is going to be able to do anything and everything. And so there's a warning there. And the reality is, we are people who crave that life. We are people who would build our entire lives around our self-indulgences, if we could. We're all like this younger widow. So consider the question if I asked you, hey, I'll give you your salary that you currently make. You don't have to work. You can just do whatever you want. We would all be like, oh, man, now I got some plans. I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to have some fun. And it would be all about yourself. Right? We're all like this younger widow. We want to indulge our sexual passions. And so we do. We live in sin. We want to indulge our greed. And so we do. And we chase money. And we want to be provided for like these widows do because we equate being provided for with being able to pursue ourself. Being freed from the shackles of work and responsibility and duty and liberated to a life of self where we can do whatever we want whenever we want it. We chase provision because we're chasing ourselves. We're chasing our own idolship, idolatry. The godly widow in 1 Timothy 5, she's not so. She doesn't chase provision at all. In fact, she has spent her entire life, devoted her entire life to providing. She has lived as such a provider that it's undeniable to the world even that she has a good reputation for her good deeds, that she's built her family up with love, that she sat on the ground on her hands and knees and she's watched, washed other people's feet. She's there for the sick. She's there to do good works. And Paul is saying to Timothy, some widows, they've lost everything and they've strayed after Satan. And some widows, they've lost everything and they run straight to Christ. This godly widow, this beautiful image of a widow we see in 1 Timothy 5, she runs to the one who she knows she will never lose. 
She may have lost her groom, but she knows that she will always and forever be Christ's bride. And she's modeled her entire life after Christ himself. She's washed feet, just like Jesus has washed feet. She's known for her good works, just like Christ, in his perfect godhood, lived a life filled with perfect good works. She's devoted herself to others. She hasn't considered herself, but she's considered others, just like Christ comes not to be served, but to serve. And she cares for the afflicted, just like Christ and his love for you cares for your affliction. That why you're self-indulgent, that while you're dead, even while you live, while you're chasing your own passions, your own desires, you're running far from Christ, Christ provides for you the thing that you actually need. The forgiveness of sins. You want a life of self and Christ comes to free you from yourself when he dies on the cross for you. Because he cares for you. Because he loves you. And because Christ cares, this widow cares. And as this widow cares so also are we called to care for her and care for one another. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. Father, we praise you that you provide for us what we need when you sent Christ to die for our sins. Lord, we confess to you that we are self-indulgent people, chasing our own comforts, our own desires, our own passions. And yet while we're dead in our sin, you save us through the work of Christ. Lord, you haven't just saved us from our our death, but you've saved us to life together. And Lord, may we be people who bring you glory by the way we care for you and care for others. Lord, help this church to be a church that comes alongside one another that builds people up, that encourages, that loves, that cares for the most weak and vulnerable. Lord, may you bless our lives and help us to live for you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.